be looking at Lord's Day 5 tonight, the back of the hymnal, page 874. And I invite you to turn in God's Word to Job chapter 9. Be bouncing around in the book of Job tonight. Be looking at Job's words in chapter 9, and then looking at some of the advice given from Job's friends and Job himself, and trying to trying to consider what is what is taking place. We look at the book of Job, and as we do, we consider God's righteousness and our need of a mediator. That's the heart of Lord's Day 5, as we look at that. We know the story of Job, right? Job was a blameless man who suffered greatly at the hands of Satan, though he didn't know that Satan was behind his suffering. His integrity led him to bring everything to God. He thought of looking nowhere else when he was wanting to address his need. He went to God. He's not going to look anywhere else but to God to help him in his pain. And yet it seemed that God was not listening to him. And he wondered out loud how he could possibly gain a hearing with God. How can I come to God? His thoughts are before us there in Job chapter 9 in verses 32 and 33. And then looking at verse 2 or reading verse 2 to open our consideration of this matter of God's righteous judgment and his righteous mediator. This is the word of God. And Job said, God is not a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. And then verse 2, how can a man be in the right before God? This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, let me say at the outset that I know that Job spends many verses protesting his innocence. And as we know, Job is not punished for sin so much as he's being tested. God has ordained that Job would be tested by the devil, that God would show himself powerful to deliver. And so I'm not using Job as an example of how we might protest our innocence before God. I've chosen this book because Job gives us a, uh, the, the idea, the, the thought of the great chasm between us and God. And uh, he says it in a very powerful way, and that's something we want to understand as we're looking at Lord's Day 5 tonight of the Catechism. Scripture makes clear that all sinners are deserving of the just judgment of God, But thankfully, that's not the only word from God. He reveals also a Savior. But we'll we'll, we'll get to that. But look with me at Lord's Day 5. Question 12 asks, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? So we've looked at the misery of man, and now as as the catechism transitions into uh, uh, the the, uh, grace of God, it's setting before us the possibility of escape from this punishment and return to God's favor. The answer is God requires that His justice be satisfied, so it can't be that His justice is just set aside. Therefore, the claims of this justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Question 13, can we, can we make this payment ourselves? And the answer is certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. Question 14, can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No, 
To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. And then question 15, what kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? The answer, one who is a true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is also true God. There are people of God, no person can stand before the holy God and claim to be able to pay his or her debt before God because of their sin. How then can the catechism speak of deliverance from deserved punishment? Well, that that is how the Scripture uh, speaks to us and, and lays it out before us. And the, the way that uh, we think about the background of Job's story, that's in the background. How can, how can the, not only the catechism, but the Scripture speak of deliverance? How does the Scripture speak of deliverance from deserved punishment? We know the story, as I've said. We know the background. Uh, Satan is testing Job intensely, and Job doesn't know why he's suffering so intensely. He says, I, I don't know what I've done. He, he, the assumption on his part is that I've, I, I'm, I'm being punished for some sin that I've committed, and, and I want to know from, from God, what is it? What is this sin? And we recognize that it is the devil who is at work. And children, I want us to understand something very clearly here. Satan is no friend of ours. He's a tormentor. He's not one that we want to be friends with, but one who is our great adversary, as the Bible says it. So when he speaks, he speaks lies. When he acts, he acts deceitfully. We see that in Scripture, and that is brought out here as well throughout the book of Job. When Job's friends hear of his suffering, they come and they come to comfort him, to console him, to to, to be with him. Soon we hear their conclusion on the matter, on Job's situation. Job, you're suffering because you're a sinner. Just fess up, be, be done with it, get it over with. And, and Job says, that's just it. I don't, I don't know what it is. I, I, I'm not, I don't know what, what I'm being punished for. He says, I, I'm, he's not saying that he's not sinless or that he's perfect, but he's not sure what he is to bring to God. Job's, Job, you're suffering for some great sin, his friends say, and we recognize it's true that one day sinners will face judgment for sin. God will punish sin with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment in, in, in hell, as we saw last, uh, last week in the, uh, the, the last Lord's Day. In Job, we see a, and I, wanna, I, I didn't know how to say this, I want to be careful how I say this, it, it, I hope it comes across clearly, but in Job, we see the desperate state of the unrepentant sinner. Job's not unrepentant, but we see him suffering. And what we're, what we're seeing there is this is the condition of the sinner who refuses to confess to God, who is going to face a, a separation from him, an inability to communicate with him and to be cut off from this kind and loving God. It's not a pretty picture. Job gets a taste of the, of the misery of not hearing from God. And we should, we should be shocked. We should be, be uh, uh, alerted and, and consider this soberly tonight. What is it like if God were not to speak to us? Job gets a taste of this misery and he can't bear it. He longed for and at the same time he feared going to God. He, he's, he's 
aware that there's something wrong, and he says, what is it? I don't know if I dare go to him. Perhaps I've done something, and he's, he's going to continue to torment me. He thought God was his tormentor. He, we have to remember, was one who knew the sweetness of fellowship with God, but he also knew the holiness of God. God wasn't answering him when he called, and so he wondered, how can I possibly gain a hearing with God? What else can I do? To whom can I go? The book of Job opens with the description by God of Job. Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. This does not mean that he was not a sinner, but it meant that he had a deep understanding and a deep relationship with the Lord. So we can well imagine the, the pain that this caused him, that when, he, when, he's, when he's crying out to God and is suffering and there's no response, he's, he's, he's deeply troubled. God's silence is so painful and confusing to him, and he's, he's, he understands he's unworthy to appear before God, but he also knew that apart from God, there, there is no true blessing. There's no, there's no life. So he continues to press on in this. Well, we know what Job did not know. Satan was attacking him. It was not God who was his tormentor. He suffered more or less alone. His friends, he says in chapter 16, verse 2, are miserable counselors, offering him no help. What he heard from them was, God is punishing you for your sin. Repent, and then blessing will return. Well, let's look at some of the counsel or some of the advice from his friends. Eliphaz says in chapter 4 that no man can question God's wisdom in dealing with sinners. And that's true. That's true. He says, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Well, no, he can't in and of himself. So Eliphaz speaks truth when he says this. No one can come before God in himself and declare that he is pure. God is righteous and just in all of his ways, and he will punish the guilty. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. The problem with Eliphaz's portrayal of God is that he portrays him as a ruthless tyrant who delights in, in, in squashing, in, in, in showing a, a, a severe and stern face, and that alone. No compassion. We must be careful not to misrepresent God and His character. He is just. So we talk about that matter of His justice and that He does have to... Uh, uh, we are under his justice. We deserve punishment, says in the catechism. But he is not without compassion. He takes no pleasure in punishing the wicked, we read in Ezekiel 18. We must remember this when we're talking with others about God's just punishment of sin. We, we can't ignore that. We can't just set that aside and say, well, that, that's not something that, that's, that's important. We must be careful. When we speak, he does not delight in the death of the wicked, but calls to the wicked. He says, why would you die? Turn from your sin and live, Ezekiel 18 and verse 32. So there we're, we're seeing a bit more about, of God than just simply that he does judge sin. And that's, as the, that's what the catechism is doing as it transitions from our misery, from, from our state under condemnation, under the curse of sin, which is death. It's saying, but, but there's more about God that you need to understand. 
There's more that he says about himself. Those who, I was trying to think of how to illustrate this. Well, those who, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Those who view God as only cruel and lacking compassion, like that little boy, or I won't, I won't lump the girls into this. I'll just leave it with the boys. That little boy who, who has his magnifying glass and he's, he's concentrating the, sun, the sun's rays on an insect and he's smiling with glee as he watches that little insect just burn under the light. I don't see a lot of connection. Maybe none of you ever did that. I know a little boy who did. What, what, what kind of a picture is that, right? It's a, it's a picture of who is this God? Well, I don't, I, don't, I don't, not only do I not know how to come to him, I don't want to go to him. If he's like that, that's a wrong image of God. Eliphaz is right to say that no man can approach God in his own merit, boldly in himself, saying, well, I'm, I'm, you can have at me, Lord, I'm pure. No, there is no one who is pure. No one who is without sin. He says, can a mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And the answer, no. However, he misrepresented God's character. And the other friends do that too. And that's why at the end of the book of Job, God says, your friends, Job, have not spoken rightly about me. Chapter 42, verse 7. Eliphaz makes God appear to be harsh and angry towards everything he's ever made. There in verse 18, chapter 4, but... But God is loving toward all that he has made. We read that. Psalm 145. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, as we've already said. He desires that all would come to salvation. Well, Job knows this God. He knows this holy God, but he knows this, this God who, with whom he's had, he's had deep fellowship and, and warm relationship. And he wants to go to him and to talk to him but he doesn't know how. Can a man, beginning of chapter 9, which we read, can a man be in the right before God? Can I go and, and, and come to God? And then he goes on there in chapter 9, if, verse 3, if one wished to contend with God, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. And he goes on and he describes him more and more and the greatness of God. And then he says in, in verse 12, who will say to God, what are you doing? Who would have such audacity? Who would have such, such boldness to come to God and say, what are you, who do you think you are? And yet we see that today, don't we? Oh, it may not be directed against God, but it's a grumbling against the church or the grumbling against the leaders of the church. And it, what it is, it, it's, it's what we saw uh, last week when they're grumbling against Moses and Aaron. What does Moses say? You're grumbling not against Aaron. You're, Mo you're grumbling against God. Your real beef is with God, at least insofar as we are representing him accurately and speaking truth clearly. So we need to be very careful about thinking we can just come into his presence and, and tell him how it goes. Eliphaz, again, he says this. He's, he's right to say that there's no one great enough to be a go-between between the sinful man and, and God. He says to, to Job, you can't even come to the angels, the beginning of chapter 5 there in verse 1. He says, he says you, who do you think you are? 
Another friend of Job, Bildad, comes along and says, God is upright. He cannot be charged with wrongdoing, chapter 8 and verse 3. That's true. He speaks further truth when he says, God will not reject a blameless man. Well, that's true too. Chapter 8, verse 20, he will receive the blameless man. But Job recognizes there is no such man who can come before him. Job's not disagreeing with what Bildad says. But he knows that no man can declare himself righteous before God, chapter 9 and verse 2, as we've already seen. No one can say, I myself have paid my debt in full to God, which is what question and answer 13 says to us. Can we make this payment ourselves? Certainly not. We increase our debt every day. The answer to escape God's punishment is not to conclude that God will not punish sin. He will. Well then, secondly tonight, how is there any escape from God's judgment? Job yearned to hear from God to help him in his misery. He doesn't want to flee from God. He wants to go to God, but he says, I, 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 don't, I don't seem to have his ear to speak uh, anthropomorphically, just to give God an ear. I don't, I don't, he doesn't seem to be listening to me. And I don't know how to shout louder, we might say. He's wondering, is there any, any way to escape from suffering? Because that is the ultimate end for those who are separate from him. He longs for a go-between, someone who could go to God for him. Another, another way of translating verse 33 that we read tonight in chapter 9, would that there, 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 there would be an arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. He looks for one like him who could represent him, one that he could approach, and, and that one then could approach on his behalf, even God Almighty. He knows, and we know, that if our sins were counted, they would number more than the grains of sand on the seashore. How then could we be set free from the penalty our sins deserve? It's not through repenting. Let me explain. Job's friends say, well, you want to know how you're going to be restored? Just repent. Just repent of whatever you've done and you'll be restored. Well, we know that it's not through the amount of repenting that we do that we can restore relationship. Now, don't misunderstand. The Bible says we must repent. Each and every day we ought to repent of our sins. That's not how, we, that's not how we, 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 we can satisfy God's just demands against our sin. So while that's, that's true and that's necessary, it's, it's not the way, it's not the answer to how we escape God's judgment. Just by repenting enough or, or to the right, to the right uh, person, it's foolish to say in our hearts, well, Jesus is a gracious Savior, therefore I don't need to worry about my sin or about confessing it. It's all okay. No, the heart that loves God hates sin and does want to repent of it. Yet no amount of repentance or prayers to saints or anyone or anything else can satisfy for sin and restore fellowship. Question and answer 14 gets to that and we'll come back to that. Job didn't know the source of his suffering. And his greatest frustration was he thought he knew this God with whom he had relationship. And he says, I, I, I just want to talk with him. 
Isn't that a, isn't that a wonderful sentiment? And that, that's something we should desire. We should be wanting to talk with God each and every day. He doesn't say, I don't want to hear from you, you insignificant little ant. He says, I want you to talk to me. I want you to walk with me. Converse with me. Job is conversing with God, and, or he's speaking to God, and there seems to be no response. And he says in chapter 16, verses 16 and 17, he gives a description. He says, my face is red with weeping, and on my eyelids is deep darkness, although there is no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. He's, he's, acknowledging, he's, he's, he's just admitting, he's being honest. He says, I don't know what, I'm, I don't know what it is. Job asks God to pardon his transgression. Chapter 7 and verse 21, he, he says, Why? Why do you not pardon my transgression? 721, and take away my iniquity. He's not denying that he's not a sinner. Here he admits that he has transgression and iniquity that needs to be pardoned and to be taken away. But he doesn't understand why God will not deliver him from his suffering. He comes to the conclusion almost that God would prefer to punish than to forgive. Now, how does the world hear that when we talk about a God who will judge sin? They say, oh, I don't like your God because he just likes to punish. He likes to, to, uh, uh, to squash people. No, that's not what the Scripture is teaching Scripture is teaching that he's going to one day remove all uh, consequence of sin and wickedness so that there might be paradise that it might be glorious, that it might be something that we look forward to. He wants to forgive. God delights to forgive. He rejoices over the sinner who repents, Luke 15, 7. He's gracious and compassionate. Let me remind us of those words of, of Psalm 103, this description of who God is. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. This is the God of the Bible. Yes, He will punish sin, but He's also ready to forgive. Going on, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, yet he's not going to forego his justice. That's not what that verse says, what it teaches. Goes on, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He's removing them from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Part of that fear is to say, Lord, how? How is there deliverance? Where can I go to be delivered from my sin? And the Lord speaks clearly, as we'll see a bit later under our, final, or under our last point. The psalmist says there, further in Psalm 103, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all those who are oppressed by sin. 
Don't forget that biblical testimony. Don't, don't give a wrong impression of who God is. So, how will he keep his justice and forgiveness? Not by punishing another creature for our sin. This couldn't work. Question answer 14. Can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No. To begin with, God will not punish another, or excuse me, any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. How can he cover the infinitude of our sin? How do we put our sin in perspective? I don't know if any of you have ever been to New York City and you've gone to Times Square and you've seen the national, the, the national debt clock. Been there to see it. You can't even keep, the, keep up with the numbers. They're flipping so fast. And yet we think, well, since it's a number, it's measurable, right? It's something measurable. We, could, we can pay this back. We just, we just have to put a number on it. How much do our kids now owe? How much does every single citizen in the United States owe to pay off that? It's, it's a ridiculous number, and it, it continues to increase. So it is with our sin before God. We can't imagine the infinitude of our sin. We're hopelessly in debt. So how does God maintain his justice while offering forgiveness? It is in this. He absorbs the punishment. He bears the judgment. God cares for sinful man. That is the astounding uh, uh, confession of the, the psalmist in, in Psalm 8. And then again, it's picked up in Hebrews chapter 2. Who is the Son of Man that you care for Him? Or what is the Son of Man that you care for Him? How is it that you care for Him? And yet that is the God who is, the one who cares for the hopelessly burdened sinner who is under the uh, inescapable judgment for sin. The one who hears us cry out and who answers us as we hear Him speaking so clearly and so wonderfully when he comes to Moses in Exodus 3 and he says, I've heard the cries of my people in bondage and I will deliver. God provides a Savior who can deliver from judgment. But Before we come to that, again, I want to use just a few more words of Job because I think he helps us place our, our, our thoughts on the table so that we can, we can make sense of this. Chapter 14, he says, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. Verse 4, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? He says, there is not one. He, he knows the inherited depravity of man. He says, we, we inherit that depravity. It's, it's ours at, at conception, the psalmist says. And yet Job expresses in chapter 19, verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold. My eyes, not someone else's. He says in chapter 16, and verse 19, 
Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. He looks ahead with eyes of faith, and he says, God has a way. God is my redeemer, and we have the the, the blessed position in history to be beyond the cross so we can look back and say, ah, there is God's answer, his provision. God looks down, and he sees your distress and mine as he saw Job's misery and God allows Satan to test Job to reveal his power in Job's life. What is the explanation for Job's ability to endure, to persevere? It is this, God. God grants grace to Job that he might endure the devil's worst, that he might be restored to blessed fellowship as we see in chapter 42. It's true, no man, no one born of a woman can atone for sins. All flesh is corrupt from conception on, with the exception of one, Son of God who came from heaven and took on flesh, being conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, the God-man who is true and righteous man, more powerful than all creatures, for he is true God. That's what question 15 asks, what kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? The answer, one who is true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is also true God. And you remember the testimony of John there in the opening of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Speaking of the Son of God who revealed the glory of God in the flesh. It is through Him that we can go to our Heavenly Father Find forgiveness knowing that justice has been satisfied in those words. It is finished upon the cross. And that being united to him by faith, we are seated even now in the heavenlies as Paul so eloquently puts it in Ephesians 2 and verse 6. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is our advocate on high, 1 John 2, 2. And no charge against us can stand If we are in Him, for we're declared righteous in Him, reckoned righteous. What does Paul say in Romans 8, 33? Listen to these words. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. He is the one who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has become our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption, which leads Paul to then say at the end of this great doctrinal section of the book of Romans, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. O God, our glorious heavenly Father, You who are just and righteous and most 
merciful and compassionate, one who gives what we need. We praise your holy name. There is none like you. There is none other. It is you that we praise. It is you that we worship. It is you to whom we come in time of need, in time of joy, with supplication, with thanksgiving, at all times. Lord, help us to have that deeper relationship and that solid foundation as we look to your provision in the Lord Jesus Christ, rejoicing that we've been delivered from that eternal punishment as your Son has come to be our substitute. Hear us receive our praise and our thanksgiving and hear us in our need and comfort us with those words, it is finished. Amen.